Well, hello everyone. As Pastor has said, my name is John Kelly, and uh, just to give you a brief information about myself, I was born in Texas, but my mother's family was from down south, but my father's family was from Maine, so I grew up in Maine, so not too terribly far away, where I'm uh, uh, from New England, and grew up in the Bangor, Maine area. And I encourage you, if you're at all able, I brought prayer cards with me. I will put these on the back. So I encourage you to pick up one of these. And it's a picture of our family. Uh, we desire to plant a church in western Massachusetts. So if you would pick up one of these, some prayer requests on the back, a picture of our family, stick it on your fridge. Please remember to pray for us. As Spurgeon said, the greatest kindness that anyone could ever do for any person is pray for them. And so I encourage you to pick that up and pray for us. And yes, yesterday when we were at the Fiddle Fest, we met a lady that was from all places from Louisiana, had moved here and had family uh, in Shelburne Falls, Massachusetts, which is where we're looking at Lord willing, wanting to plant a church in Franklin County in northwestern uh, Massachusetts. And so would you pray for us? I'll be sharing more about that this afternoon in a slideshow presentation but if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to take them and turn with me to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3, and we'll begin our reading at verse 14. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 14. Let us hear the word of the Lord. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. And we trust the Lord will add His blessing to the reading of His own holy and errant and infallible Word. We'll be taking for our text this morning, verse 16. And let us open here in a word of prayer before the message. Our kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the Word of the Lord. And we know that every single time that the book of God is open, that the bread of life is broken, that it always has the potential to change us for time in eternity. For Your Word is very much alive. It is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, we pray that You would take Thy Word and that, Lord, that You would use it to minister to us this day. Lord, I would ask for that anointing of the Holy Spirit that makes preaching not just easy, but makes it effective to the ministering of the hearts of Thy people. And I pray, Lord, that my preaching and my teaching would not be with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that this church's faith would not stand in the wisdom of a man, but in the power of the Lord. Lord, we ask that you would give that unction from on high to listener alike, 
to receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save their soul, that, Lord, that they would receive the word with great profit today. So, Lord, as we think upon Thy word, come. We pray that the true preacher, the teacher would come, the Holy Spirit, and apply Thy word to our hearts. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Today, you and I, we live in a culture that relishes uncertainty and relativism. So many people around our country just do not know what it is that they are to believe and what it is that they are to think. And especially within my own generation. But not just my own generation, the millennial generation, but all across the spectrum, from young to old alike, There are so many that wonder, is the Bible really true? Is God's Word true? Was Jesus really a man that lived and walked upon the earth? Did Jesus really die upon the cross for the sins of His people? So many questions are in their mind. But here in our text, in verse 16, we find sure and certain truths. What we actually find here in our text is one of the first confessions of the early church. And maybe you have wondered, as you sat through church here for some length of time, having come here, you have wondered, why do we have a confession of faith? Some would prefer not to have one, but there are very many positive benefits to a good confession, and this text supports such ideas of formal statements of faith. Look with me at our very first line of this text. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now it's very interesting, this one little phrase here, without controversy, it is two words, but one word in the original Greek language, and it only occurs here once in the entirety of our New Testament. But it is very significant because this phrase, without controversy, W.E. Vine defines the word to mean confessedly. Thus, this provides for us. This provides for us the idea of being confessional. But what do we mean by confessional? What we mean by confessional is that the church adopts, it knows, it loves, and it binds itself to a confession, such as our church does to the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Westminster Standards. But there's something that you and I must understand. That all confessions, like the Westminster Confession of Faith, the 1689 London Baptist Confession, the Savoy Declaration, the Belgic Confession, they are all subservient to the Word of God. And this great confession that we're going to be looking at here in 1 Timothy 3.16 is a confession that is regarding this mystery of godliness. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, what is this mystery? It might be a mystery to you this morning. What is this mystery of godliness? Well, this mystery of godliness is referring, as we will see, to the entire spectrum of God's revealed plan of salvation. 
And what follows here in verse 16 are three couplets which summarize this gospel. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and then received up into glory. Now I submit to you, not only did the church need such a confession then, but the church today needs to stand strong upon this confession today. Why? Because there are those within our own day, even within the professing invisible church, even churches in New York and all around our country, whose ministers will stand up and deny that our Lord Jesus was miraculously conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. They will deny the blood atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will deny that He rose again three days from the grave and they will deny that He is ascended and is seated at the Father's right hand. What do these churches do? They take scissors, as it were, to their confession and for that matter, the very Word of God and they cut the very heart out of it, which is the Gospel. For when they attack the person of Christ, it is an attack upon the very Gospel itself. The great danger today is this, is if we move away from these truths presented by the Apostle in this verse, we move away from the Gospel. So my friends, in light of living in a world that is tossed about with every wind of doctrine, here are fundamental truths that you and I can plant our feet on for time and eternity. These are truths that I call you to stand upon. Today, I call you to stand upon this confession. So in light of this, that I want to bring the message to you this morning. Truths we must confess. Truths we must confess. Now this confession, as we have read in verse 16, is a wonderful summary of the Christian faith and the person and work of Christ and something that will guard us from heresy and apostasy. So let us consider these lines in this verse. I want you to see with me, first of all, the incarnation. You'll see it with me there, the verse 16. God was manifest in the flesh. Here in our text is brought together both natures of our blessed Redeemer. Here we have His divinity, God. And we have His humanity was manifest in the flesh. This is the wonder of wonders. God appeared in human form. This glorious truth and this reality of the incarnation stretches all the way back to the book of Genesis, to that wonderful messianic promise found in Genesis 3.15 that there would be one that would be born that would crush the head of the serpent. And that spoke of the Messiah to come our Lord Jesus Christ. This was prophesied in the great book of Isaiah. I love to call the book of Isaiah the Gospel of Isaiah because there is so much wonderful Gospel truth. In Isaiah 7.14, that text you no doubt have heard so many times around Christmas. 
that the Lord would come upon a virgin and that virgin would conceive and bear a son and she would call his name Emmanuel. Here you have in that one verse the Lord's divinity and his humanity. A son would be born, but his name would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. He is more than just a mere man. And it would be a supernatural birth. Why? Because there would be a virgin that would conceive. Not of natural generation, but a supernatural birth. This is seen as well in Isaiah 9, in verse 6 and 7. Under us a son is born, unto us a child is given. And the government shall rest upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. You see in that verse as well his humanity and his divinity. He will be a son. He will be a child. But this child will be called the mighty God, the Father of eternity, the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Life. This is seen in the Gospel of John, in John 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Son is co-eternal with the Father. And the Word was with God. He is co-existent with the Father. And the Word was God. He is co-equal with the Father. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we're told by the Apostle Paul that this event all took place in the fullness of time. John said He was manifested to take away and bear our sins away. He was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. My friends, time would fail us to show from the Gospels our Lord's divinity and His humanity. But just to give you a few examples of our Lord's divinity, remember when Nathaniel came to Jesus and Jesus said to him, I saw thee under the fig tree, Nathaniel, before you ever came to me. Remember when Jesus said to the religious of his day, he said, before Abraham was, I am. And they took up stones ready to stone him. Why? Because he was making himself equal with God. I think one of the greatest I am statements of our Lord came as he was in the garden of Gethsemane and Judas came with that rebel band to lay hands upon our blessed Savior. And as Judas came and entered into the garden, they said, are you the Christ? And remember what our Lord said? He said, I am. And as he spoke those words, we read that John wrote that the entire crowd fell backward and fell on the ground. They didn't happen to trip over a rock and knock over the entire crowd. It was a demonstration of the power and the divinity of our Lord Jesus. We see his humanity. He was a man that tired. He was a man that thirsted. He was a man that was hungry. He was a man that bled. He was a man that was touched with the feelings of our infirmities. But yet he was holy God and holy man. And it is this truth of the incarnation that the liberal and the Bible denier attacks vehemently in our day. For there is no incarnation. Then there can be no salvation. The Incarnation provides for us a clear proof that God is a keeper of His covenant promises. 
He promised the seed to come that would crush the head of the serpent, a Messiah to come, and that is exactly what the Lord did. It is a doctrine that marks Christianity as a supernatural religion. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. Christ did not come to bring more reformation to society. Christ did not come to bring greater enlightenment to man. Christ did not come to bring you personal gain. But Christ has come to bring salvation to those whom God had chosen to save in Christ. God came in the person of Christ to forgive us of our sin. And to attack this is to attack the very heart of Christianity itself. We read in Matthew 1.21 that thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sin. So to undo this supernatural birth of the Redeemer undoes any idea of the new birth in the Christian. So we see the first truth we must confess is the Incarnation. But the second truth I want you to notice that we must confess is the vindication. Look with me at the next phrase. Not only was God manifest in the flesh, but He was justified in the Spirit. Now this word translated justified simply means He was vindicated. We could translate it this way. He was vindicated by the Spirit. But what does that mean? This phrase, vindicated by the Spirit, is indicating to us that He is shown to be the Son of God through the agency of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Ghost proves that He is the Son of God throughout His life. At the very incarnation we read in Matthew 1.18, the angel appears and says to Mary, that thou art found with child by the Holy Ghost. At His baptism... As our Lord is coming up out of the water, we see the Spirit of God coming down and resting upon Him in the form of a dove. Fulfilling Isaiah 11 in verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him. John the Baptist said that you will know who the Messiah is by this, upon whom you see the Spirit of God descending and remaining the same as He that baptizeth with the Holy Ghost and with fire. John 1.33 Jesus also cast out devils by the Holy Spirit in Matthew 12.28. Not only did He cast out devils by the finger of God, but He said that He cast out devils by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was given without measure to Christ in John 3.34. And also the Spirit was sent down in accordance with Christ's promise to convert men in Acts 2.33. We read there in Acts 2.33 that as the Son ascended, that the Father sent the promised Holy Spirit, which is exactly what Jesus said would happen. In John 15 and verse 26, Jesus said that I must go away, and when I go away, I will send the Comforter unto you, who is the Spirit of truth. He promised those that were there gathered. There in Acts 1, he promised those who were in Jerusalem just prior to His ascension that they would receive the promise of the power of the Holy Spirit and be His witnesses into all the world. And this is precisely what happened in Acts 2. And it's precisely what continues to happen 
unto this day. But perhaps the greatest vindication is seen by a reference to our Lord's resurrection. In Romans 1.4 we read that He was declared to be the Son of God, the power according to the Spirit of Holiness by the resurrection of the dead. R.C. Sproul commenting on that said this, he said, the point is that Christ's resurrection vindicated him by overturning the guilty verdict of the ungodly world court. The world's court judged him to be in the wrong and a liar and a false teacher. But the resurrection proved that he lived the life of perfect righteousness. And you and I that are united to Christ, you and I that are identified with Christ's resurrection, are identified with His perfect righteousness. And Romans 4.25, He was delivered for our offenses, but raised again for our justification. But I want you to understand something. I want you to understand that none of these verses are teaching some form of adoptionism, or simply that Jesus became the Son at His incarnation or somehow that Jesus became the Son at His baptism, or somehow He just became the Son at His resurrection. Oh no! We must beware of doctrines that would subordinate the Son and cause Him to lose His equality with God. And I, my prayer is today that the Spirit of God will make very clear to you that Jesus is the God-man. May the Spirit make very clear to you that Jesus is indeed risen from the dead by the power of the Spirit. For apart from believing that Jesus arose from the dead, you cannot be saved. You say, is that true? Yes, Romans 10 verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. It is essential to believe in the resurrection in order for one to be truly born of God. So I ask you this morning, do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus lived the life that you could not live? Died the death that you should have died? That He rose again and is ascended and is seated at the Father's right hand? My friends, the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 5, the very end of Matthew 5, He said, Be ye perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. And I have a confession to make to you today. I am not perfect in and of myself. There's not a single person living in these United States or in the world that is perfect. But there is one that lived a perfect life on your behalf, and that perfect righteousness that God requires can be yours by faith. Imputed to you by faith. So when you stand before God on that great and final day of judgment as you have believed in the Lord Jesus, there is an imputed righteousness given to you and you will not enter in based upon your own works, but upon the work of another, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have seen this incarnation, we have seen this vindication. But thirdly, see with me, another truth we must confess is this observation. He was seen of angels, our text says. He was seen of angels. One writer said that when you examine the life of Christ, 
One evidence that this is no mere man is the fact that his life and work was witnessed and supported by angels. Jesus lived his life as an incomprehensible spectacle to the angels. The God-man was seen of the angels. I think about all the way back during the days of creation. When the Lord Jesus was there, all things were made by Him and for Him, and by Him all things consist. And as the Son of God was scooping out the oceans, and as He was laying the mountains, and as He flung the stars against the velvet of the black night, there the angels were, singing His praises, the sons of God, lifting up their voices to Him. There they were. That as the Lord Jesus descended down, as it were, into the room of the Virgin Mary, there the angels were in Luke 1, verse 31 and 33, declaring His name and His reign. They said to Mary, Thou shalt call His name Jesus, and He will be given the throne of His father David. They also declared in song, The Messiah has come to be the Savior of all men. In Luke 2, verse 8 through 14, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And as Jesus was brought out and led into the wilderness after his baptism, and he was tempted of the devil, we read that at the end of that temptation, that there the angels were, ministering to the Lord Jesus. The angels were there as Jesus Christ rose again in resurrection. In Matthew 28, there the angels sat upon the top of the stone. We read that the angels even participated in His ascension in Acts 1, 10 and verse 11. That as the Lord Jesus ascended, there the angels were with Him. The audience below beheld the Christ's victory in the heavens. And what a sight it had to be. But I submit unto you that the angels are not done as regards their ministry to our Savior. For they have said that at that glorious second advent, on that last day in human history, the Lord Jesus will bolt out of heaven on a white seed. And as He comes, He will come with all His holy angels. We read in Matthew 24, 31, that when the Lord Jesus returns, that He will send His angels and He will gather together His elect from the four ends of the earth, from one end to the other. We read in 2 Thessalonians 1.7 that when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, He will come with His mighty angels. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 that the Lord Jesus Christ, when He shall return, He will come with the voice of the archangel. My friends, I ask you this morning, do you have an interest in the person and the work of Christ? The angels look into these things we read in 1 Peter 1-2. The angels, we were just speaking about it yesterday, I believe, Pastor Owen and I, about the angels are looking in and the angels are here beholding our order and beholding our worship. And I wonder what they're observing here today. They're very interested in the worship of Christ. And I ask you, are you interested in this worship of Christ? Do you long to study the wonders of His grace? Do you sing, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Is there a wonder in all in your heart that you are sinner saved and pardoned? Have more cause than these to sing. They do not know what it is to be redeemed by God's good sovereign grace. God never gave the angels a Redeemer. 
But God saw fit to save the fallen sons of Adam's race. God seen fit to send a Savior to die in our place in order that we might be with Him for all of eternity. So we have seen His incarnation, His vindication, this observation. I want you to see fourthly with me the proclamation. This other truth we must confess is this proclamation. He was preached unto the Gentiles and believed on in the world. As Paul is pinning this, he's actually approaching the very end of his ministry. And he has actually witnessed this proclamation. For Paul writes in one of his letters to the church of Colossae, Colossians 1 and verse 5 and 6, he speaks about this gospel which has gone out into all the world. Colossians 1.23, he says regarding this gospel, that it was preached to every creature which is under heaven. He says some other similar things in the book of Romans. Now don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying that the Great Commission was fulfilled by any means in the life of the Apostle Paul. But Paul could say with confidence that the Roman Empire had heard and has been sounded forth the gospel in the entirety of the Roman Empire, that he has gone forth and the Lord had mightily used him. But all that Christ is and all that Christ has done, we're told here, is to be declared unto the Gentiles and the nations. But how is it that this message of Christ is to be declared? He tells us in this verse that He is to be preached unto the Gentiles. Now, this word preach, there's several different words that are used in the New Testament for the word preach. But this word for preach means to lift up one's voice like a trumpet. It means to be a herald. The actual idea of this word in the Bible times, uh, they were living in the Roman Empire, and there would be a town crier, And if a general of the Roman army had won a great victory, the town crier would run into the town center, he'd lift up his voice and say, the general of the Roman army has wrought a great victory. And he would declare it as loudly as possible. And this is what the Bible says we are to do with the gospel. As it were, we are to go into the town center, go into the city center, go into the community center, and lift up our voice and declare that Jesus is the Lord. This is what Jesus said in Mark sixteen fifteen: Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Every creature needs a preacher. Every creature needs someone to tell them of the glories of Jesus Christ. This is what Philip did. In Acts 8 and verse 5, he went down into Samaria and he preached. Caruso, he preached Christ to them. My friend, this good news of the gospel is to be preached unto the nations. And we can do this today because of the power of the Holy Spirit that descended at Pentecost. And my friends, I have good news to you. Jesus has all power not only in heaven but on earth. And he says, because I have all power in heaven and on earth, go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And oh, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. The King of heaven promises to you and I the success 
of this great commission. But in turn, Christ is believed on in the world when He is preached unto the nations. And what a wonderful promise. What is promised is that the preaching will be effective in the salvation of God's elect. There will be none for whom Christ has shed His royal scarlet blood for that will ever be lost. And this should then spur us on to believe that sinners will be saved as the gospel is preached. The fact that sinners are being converted, the fact that you are converted, if you're in this building and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you have bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus, the fact that you are converted in this day and age, attests to these divine claims of Jesus Christ. So I ask you, what are you doing to proclaim the Lord to the nations? What are you doing to proclaim Christ to your community? You have a promise that He will be believed on in the world. Go, my friends, and trust that God will bring in the sheaves. Not only preach Him, not only is He believed on, but last of all, I want you to see with me, the last truth we must confess is this exaltation. He was received up into glory. Barnes calls this the crowning grandeur of the work of Christ. When I think about Psalm 24, I see it as the great ascension psalm of the Lord Jesus, prophetic of our Messiah. The Lord Jesus has died for our sins. He has arisen again and He ascends up as the man, the God-man. And what a marvelous truth it would be. Friends, can you imagine the God-man there in Jerusalem ascending up by His own innate power into the very presence of Almighty God, not carried by angels, not carried by an airplane or some other thing, but by His own innate power and a cloud of glory, He ascends up into the very presence of God. And as He ascends up into the very presence of God, I think about Psalm 24, that as He stands at the very gate of heaven, there's a cry that comes out from the other side. Who is this King of glory? And there comes a resound from the other side. The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. And for the first time, the gates of heaven are swung open to a man. The Lord Jesus Christ. And he walks down, as it were, that golden street. And he takes his rightful position at the right hand of God Almighty. And there he is seated upon the throne of his father David, waiting until every enemy is placed underneath his feet. The God-man assumes the throne at the right hand. And we are told that at this ascension and at this exaltation, that there is given to him all power and dominion. For we read in Daniel 7 and verse 13 that there is one like the Son of Man that ascended up unto the Ancient of Days. The only time I can ever think in Scripture when the Son of Man goes up to the Ancient of Days on clouds is at His ascension. And this is a prophetic passage speaking to us about the ascension of our Lord. That as the Lord ascended up to heaven and as He has taken His seat at the right hand that there has been given to our Savior, not just at some future time, but at this present time, He has all dominion and all power and all glory. And every knee will bow to Him. And He will be there seated, we're told, in 1 Corinthians 15. 
until every enemy is placed underneath His feet, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. My friend, what an encouragement this is. And what encouragement this had to be to the early church. Enemies are constantly coming against the church of Christ and against our Lord Jesus Christ. But as reigning king, the enemies of Christ will never dethrone him or thwart his sovereign rule. Psalm 2, the nations are raging. They're shaking their fist at Almighty God. But you remember what Psalm 2 said, The Lord has set His Son at His right hand. He has set His King in the glory upon His holy hill of Mount Zion. And the Lord laughs. Every ideology that seeks to exalt itself against Christ will be thrown down and one day buried by His infinite power. Oh, my friends, we have great reason to say great is the mystery of godliness. This gospel stands as a grand gospel testimony. This confession provides a protection from heresy. This confession provides hope for gospel success in advance. This is a confession that this church and you personally can stand on for time and eternity and you are truly blessed if you can confess these things yourself. Blessed are you if you know this mystery of godliness, the gospel. Those of you here that are saved by God's good grace, I call you to behold the victory of Christ. He has come. He has died. He has arisen. He has ascended. And hallelujah to God, He reigns today. And He has all dominion. And He is conquering the rebels by the power of the gospel for you yourself that are saved by His grace are a testimony that your rebel heart has been subdued by the gospel of God's sovereign grace. And if the Lord could subdue your heart, then is not our Lord able to subdue the hearts of sinners, even within this community and in this northeast area? Let us then go onward. Let us then go forward with the gospel knowing that the King will subdue rebel hearts by His sovereign grace, go trusting that He will yet save the prodigal, that He will yet save your friends, that you will yet save your family and your communities. You say, really do it? Isaiah 42, verse 4, a prophecy regarding a Messiah, He will not fail nor be discouraged till He has set judgment or justice in the earth. The isles wait for His law. The Lord Jesus is not tired. The Lord Jesus will not fail in winning the nations. And that great passage in Psalm 2, Ask of me and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Friend, I want to ask you, do you think that the Son forgot to ask the Father for the nations? Oh no, my friend. He has asked the Father for the nations. And He will receive them as His reward. There is hope in the risen Lord. He is a victorious King that will win and draw the nations to Himself. But I cannot but wonder if there be someone here who cannot confess these things. I wonder if there be one here who is a stranger to the Gospel 
Oh, you may acknowledge with your mind, oh yes, I believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. You say, oh yes, I believe the Spirit testified that He is the Son of God. Oh yes, I believe that Jesus really ascended. But you might confess these things with your mouth, but you have not yet accepted the Savior's invitation. It's all in your head. And today the Savior stands, and today the gates of paradise are swung open to you. And Jesus stands on the other side with His hands extended, and He says to you, Come to Me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And only does the Savior say, Come, but the Spirit and the Bride says, Come. Let him that heareth of your hearing come. Let him that is thirsty come. You say, preacher, I don't know if I can come. Well, the next phrase sums it up. Whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life freely. Revelation twenty-two seventeen. You cannot say maybe that you have believed on Him. You know the truth in your head, but they have failed to reach your heart. You may know the confession and the catechism by heart, but you do not know the Savior to whom they speak. You have a form of godliness, but you have denied the power thereof. My friend, you need to be born from above. You need to be saved. You need new life in Christ. Before you can ever make 1 Timothy 3.16 your confession, you need to make another confession. I quoted it earlier, Romans 10 and verse 9, that thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, Thou shalt be saved, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. This confession of the Lordship of Christ must come from your mouth and from your heart. Would you declare Him openly today? Would you, as we sung, crown Him Lord of all? I ask you, have you crowned Him Lord of all? Have you given your life to Jesus Christ have you submitted all that you have and all that you are and all that He is? And friend, I would encourage you not to wait till tonight, not to wait till tomorrow, not to wait till next week, next month, next year. But my friend, today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is the devil's day. Today is God's day. Today is the day to cast your anchor upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And my friend, I promise you in the authority of this book, if you call upon the Lord Jesus and cry out to Him, if all it is is the prayer of the publican, He would not so much as even lift His head up to heaven. They said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That is a prayer that the Savior will hear. If you're not saved, why not? And why not today? My friend, if you confess this truth that Jesus is the Lord and you believe in your heart, that is the truth that you'll be able to stand on for time and eternity. Amen. Amen.